This is Embodied on the State of Things, broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Anita Rao, and I invite you to stay tuned for an exciting announcement about our Embodied series at the end of today's show. Today, we are talking about the choice to live without children. It is not a new phenomenon. Around one in five women born around the turn of the 20th century in the U.S. never bore children of their own. Downward trends in childbearing during COVID match patterns noted during both the Spanish flu and the 2008 recession. But you shouldn't take that to mean that finances or rampant disease are the only factors in the choice to not get pregnant. Today, we're going to hear from three women about their reasons for living child-free. Uriah Rex is a jet mechanic at Raleigh-Durham International Airport. Hey, Uriah. Hi. Samita Mukupada is also with us. She's executive editor of Teen Vogue and co-editor of Nasty Women, Feminism, Resistance, and Revolution in Trump's America. Hey, Samita. Hello. Also with us is Sarah Devitt, a certified holistic nutritionist based in California. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I also want to extend a huge thanks to all of the people who reached out and shared their personal stories about choosing not to have children, in particular to some amazing online communities, Rich Auntie Supreme and the Child Free and Antinatalism subreddits. We will get to some of your stories and questions throughout our show today. So I'd love to get to know each of you a little bit and hear about your choices to choose a child-free life. And Sarah, I'd love to start with you. I know you're mm-hmm. over 40 years old, which is supposed to be this this really magical age for women, according to society. <laughs> um, tell me about the moment that you chose to be child-free. Was it a moment or was it a, was it a slow burn decision over time? I'd say it was a slow burn. Um, I think it was something that I felt all along throughout my 20s and then more deeply in my 30s. Um, I always, I, I don't hate kids. <laughs> I love kids. Um, but there always seemed to be something else that I was pursuing. You know, first it was going to college and then kind of establishing like who I am as an adult in the world and figuring out what I want to do and where I want to live. And the the idea of finding a husband and starting a family wasn't something that was on that list of things to do. Um, And as time went on, I realized less and less as I watched my friends and peers start to have kids that while I was happy for them, it wasn't something that I really wanted. And I'm blessed that I attracted a partner who felt similarly So it was never this kind of big conversation or big decision that we had to make. And then the final kind of nail in the coffin, if you will, was that um, in 2018, my partner and I made the decision to um, have my grandfather come live with us Mm. so we could full-time take care of him. Um, He has Alzheimer's disease. And so we're his primary caregivers. And I fully, fully believe that I could not do that with children. I mean, there's so much that we're going to get to in the show about the idea of caregiving and how caregiving extends beyond caring just mm-hmm. for children, which I think, you know, re- is reflected in a lot of y'all stories about choosing to be child-free. Um, Samita, I'd love to hear hear from you. You wrote this great piece in The Atlantic uh, about your reflections on choosing a child-free lifestyle in this particular moment in the middle of a global pandemic and, and what it caused you to reflect on. So tell us a bit about your thinking and how it has evolved over the co- course of the past year. Absolutely. I, you know, and 
I always think about like, was it a choice or was it not a choice? Because I think similarly, I it was a really gradual decision that happened over time. I think that I never, I always had a bit of an ambivalence about whether I would have children and then life just happened. <laughs> and one day I didn't have them. Um, and it wasn't necessarily, you know, what I could tell was that my friends who wanted them really pursued that option. And I was like, well, if I really wanted children, I would go in that direction. I would go for the fertility treatments. I would try to find a partner where I, you know, I could um, have a child. And the pandemic, um, you know, really, it was seeing what my friends, my mom friends were going through and the lack of support that we have socially and societally, specifically for mothers, not just families. We do not have enough support for families as well, but to see what they were going through and how they were struggling and trying to juggle their career and their home care and not having the support they needed and not having daycare, not having, you know, access to nannies, like all of that. It just made it, it became very clear that we do not support families the way that we should. And it is a sacrifice. It is a very challenging decision. Um, and this also happened at the same time that I decided to leave the city and move home and take care of my mother, mm. who was immunocompromised. And so I was caretaking and that in and of itself was really challenging. And I honestly can't imagine having a child on top of that. I want to play a quick clip, and then I want to hear from you, Uriah. We reached out to a couple of child-free online communities, um, and we heard from someone named Sierra, who's a Marine stationed at Cherry Point here in North Carolina, talking about her decision to be child-free. My little brothers are a decade younger than me, so when I was around 10, I basically took care of them up until it was time for them to go to bed and my mother came home. I got frustrated very easily, and I know I yelled at my little brothers occasionally, and I hated being yelled at as a kid. So that always made me feel bad. Yeah, and that early experience of, like, being a parent just cemented the fact that I don't want kids. I'm fine with my dog. So that was Sierra, a Marine stationed at Cherry Point. Uriah, I'd love to hear uh, a bit about your decision. And, and maybe you can touch on something that Sierra mentioned, which is um, experiences in childhood that have affected your decision. Yeah, so um, I grew up in with my older sister. She's about three years older than me. Um, my mom was a single mom. Um, my dad was a not a great dad. He was an alcoholic, drug addict. He was very abusive. And um, my mom definitely put up with him for 14 years. And then one day, just enough was enough. And she pulled my sister and I out of a really bad situation. And uh, she went and started pursuing her degree in social work and changed her life when she was about 32. And she wanted to bring my older brother, who is about 11 years older than me, but his father... Um, didn't want him to go. My mom didn't have the greatest reputation up until that point, so no one had any reason to believe in her. But uh, I really have a lot of respect for her that she uh, got out of a really bad situation and she found that empowerment to change her life. And in turn, she changed the lives of my sister and I. But she did that all by herself. She moved from the East Coast in Florida all the way out to Colorado, and it was just my sister and I. And I was about seven years old when that huge change came, hmm. and I found myself home alone a lot because mom would have to work all day, um, and then she would be in night school. And I kind of took on a role of practically raising my older sister, and it was just a very weird dynamic 
because obviously she could take care of herself. She was about 10 at the time. But when it came down to waking her up for school, we were thankfully within walking distance of our elementary school, but she was horrible at waking up. And I just found myself in that parent role of making sure she gets up on time, walking to school and then coming home, making sure all of our chores were done because, you know, we had to do the dishes. We had to cook our own meals. We had to really learn that self-reliance growing up because mom just wasn't there. Not because she didn't want to be. She just was trying to change her life and make our lives better too. So I have a lot of respect for what she did, but I also, looking back, I realized the huge sacrifices she made, not just as a mom trying to make a way for all of us, but she sacrificed her life and her own personality and her goals, but she also sacrificed a lot of experiences of being a you know, typical nuclear family mom. She didn't mm. get a lot of that with us. So she not only sacrificed her personal life, she also sacrificed, you know, her time with her kids because she just didn't have any other choice. And that also was unfortunate. Well, and I mean, my decision to be. Yeah, no, sorry. go ahead. Go ahead. Well, my decision to be child free, just it, it kind of I think it was always there. I'd never really sat down, thought about it, weighed the pros and cons and made the choice. I just I never really was pulled or drawn towards kids. I didn't really have a lot of baby dolls. And when people would come with their new babies, I never had the uh, that maternal instinct of, oh, it's so cute. I want to hold it and, you know, let me take care of it. I always had this innate avoidance to them. Just look from afar. Okay, there it is. Congratulations. I'm happy for you. But that's just never, I never made that connection. Even um, I have six nieces and two nephews and I love them all. They keep me very busy. But even when they were newborn babies, I just I was so frightened holding them because I was afraid I would do something wrong. And just the connection wasn't there until they started getting older and discovering things and being able to communicate. And then that connection really started to grow. But when they were just small babies, it just never connected with me. And while I love them and would do anything for them um, on that physical level and that emotional level, it took a while for that to to grow for me. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, I'd love to have you comment on this, Samita. I mean, I'm in this phase right now in my early 30s where I have a few friends that have kids, most who don't, but a lot of people who are kind of actively weighing this decision. And I think one of the things that you hear a lot from people who are parents is they say, you know, you don't know until you have them. You don't know until you feel that love. You don't, you you, you don't, uh, you can't, believe what it's going to be like. And I think that, you know, while they're saying that from a place of love, that can put a lot of pressure (laughs) that there's something that you're going to really be missing out on and you won't know until you've gone through that. I'm wondering how you navigate those kind of conversations when you hear them from folks. Uh, Absolutely. And I always caution people to, you know, really take those at face value, because when people give advice or say things like that, it often says more about how they're experiencing something. And and I, I think there is some truth to it, right? Like, I don't know what it is like to have children because I don't have it. Like any experience, I've never gone sky, you know, diving. I don't know what that feels like, right? <laughs> the specifics, but I can imagine it, right? And it's not so far outside of the realm of comprehension. We know what caretaking is like. We know how consuming it can be. We know 
know how children behave. You know, we know how to build relationships with children. And so I do think and I understand that when you have a child, it changes your priorities because it has to. And I think a lot of people that decide not to have children, they actually are fully aware of that potential for, you know, you know, both the possibility and the excitement of that love, but also how it reprioritizes your life. And I do think that many women that decide not to have children are very aware of that pressure. They're very aware that that is what having a child means. Um, and, and my experience with it is often if you push a little bit further, what the person is actually saying is like, you know, careful what you wish for, right? Mm. Like you, you, you really want to know the reality of this situation because it does have, to, you know, uh, everything else kind of goes to the side when you have to take care of and, you know, manage a child. And I mean, it's so all consuming. Sarah, I know you you're experiencing that firsthand with your grandfather of how all consuming it is to to be a full time caretaker for someone else. But I wonder, I mean, do you ever, I guess, worry about um you know, getting older yourself and who will care for you. And I know that's kind of one of the most common things that people have to answer for. But it's it's something I at least particularly I um, have grew up in the South Asian community. And it's really common that um, parents will move back in with their kids when they age. And, and there's kind of this circular caring for one another, which sometimes goes well, sometimes goes terribly. But there may be an expectation that you'll have someone to care for you and it'll be your child. So I wonder how you navigate that now as a caretaker for your father, but knowing that you don't have kids who will caretake for you. Yeah, well, it's it's absolutely something that I still do think about. There's moments as I'm, I'm navigating um, when I was arranging for his benefits and making his end of life arrangements and realizing that there wasn't enough money to put him in a facility. Mm. Um, we're, we're blessed that he's a veteran. Um, and, but he never took advantage of those benefits until he got diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And then I started scrambling to figure out how we were going to pay for this. Um, and that really brought to light how, um, how important it is to plan for the future. And that definitely did make me think like, oh my God, who's going to do this for me? And so there was this panic for about 30 seconds. And then I reminded myself that one of the questions that I always ponder in the choice to have children is what is your why? Mm. Why? And the answers are, you know, there's so many. And from my perspective, a lot of them tend to be a bit selfish and, or a lot selfish. <laughs> um, and that's a lot of pressure to put on a child. And so in those moments of panic, I remind myself that that is not a reason to bring another life into this world, just so that I can sleep better at night. That's so that's, interesting that's because, yeah, the selfishness um, criticism goes both ways. There are a lot of people, when I put out mm -hmm. a call on my Instagram asking folks about their experiences, people kind of came out of the woodwork saying, like, I I think I'm child-free, but I feel really selfish saying that. I really like my life, but, like, it's not because I don't like kids. There's a lot of kind of uh, feeling that you have to justify this decision because people will think that you're yeah. selfish for choosing not to have kids. Right, because we're inherently conditioned as women that that's our main purpose <laughs> because we're biologically able to bear children that that's a huge reason of what we're here to do is to carry on the lineage to um you know keep the population bountiful um and that as an idea you know 
our identity as women is bound to being a mother. And I think that that selfishness that people feel um, or that shame that people feel about the decision to be child-free is attached to that stigma. There's also maybe the pressure to bring kids into your life in other ways through foster care or adoption. I want to play a clip um, from someone we spoke to named Madeline who talks a bit about adoption and how that fits into her philosophy on living child-free. It's not so much that I'm opposed to the idea of being a mother. I'm opposed to the idea for myself of opting to bring more humans into this world the way that it currently exists both of the climate crisis and the societal dysfunction we're seeing on so many levels with the impending economic collapse I feel like we're going to see soon and racism and white supremacy getting worse rather than better, the horrible gun violence in schools, all of these factors would still be really relevant even if I were to adopt. So um, at this point, I don't think that I want to have children in any, you know, configuration or how I, uh, you know, get to that place. But if I were to decide that I wanted a kid or kids in my life, I think adoption would be the route that I would take. So that is Madeline here in Durham. And I'd love to put her um, reflections to you, Samita. I know um, environmentalism isn't in particular a, a reasoning that you have, but you've kind of reported on the variety of reasons folks choose to not have kids. And Um, have thought even about adoption yourself. So I'm wondering whether um, you've thought about other ways to welcome children into your life. Yes, absolutely. And I I am always hesitant to judge other people's decision-making and calling somebody selfish or not selfish. I think there are so many reasons why people want to have children. But the clip that you just played has a really salient point that in the current economic condition, when you're facing a pandemic, you're facing, you know, a hunger crisis, a housing crisis, what is, you know, where do we stand as individual kind of global citizens? And what is our role in ensuring that the children that exist on the planet right now are being fed and that, you know, we are building a sustainable culture and society. And I think that it is ironic to me that, you know, you got all these responses that, you know, that women feel this tremendous pressure and this Mm. guilt when, there is a very strong argument to be made for, you know, it is not, and and this is something I did try to get into in the Atlantic piece, is it may not be the most selfish decision in the world, right? If anything, you know, there is quite a bit of social and cultural sacrifice that women make when they don't have children and people continually ask them or they disregard them as, you know, effective members of society because they didn't mother. And and it is a very, um, it, it, it women are judged very deeply for this kind of decision. And so I do think that one of the things we're seeing in the last year is this a bit of a tipping point where people are really starting to question this assumption that is it selfish, right? Is it the th- is it the thing that all families should do? Um, and the opportunity to kind of really consider how we build communities and how we take care of children, you know, is the kind of two parent family like is that really working and is that the most effective? And and I think that that is, you know, definitely playing out in my own life as I think about, you know, not just adopting, but also helping my friends who have children and figuring out ways to kind of create those networks so that moms aren't just struggling through this on their own. We're going to continue this conversation after a break and talk more with Uriah about her choice to get voluntary sterilization, hear about that process and why folks make that decision. All of that just ahead on Embodied. Please stay with us. 
This is Embodied on the State of Things. I'm Anita Rao. Up until now in the series, we have talked about menopause, rural access to pregnancy care, struggles with infertility, and medical discrimination against trans and non-binary patients. But this is the first time that we have spoken with people actively choosing to live without children. One quick note, lots of people who want to bear children can't for a variety of medical or social reasons. There are folks with genetic disorders who choose to not risk passing anything on to children. There are trans men and gender nonconforming people who might avoid childbearing because of medical discrimination or gender dysphoria. But today we choose to focus on the experiences of cis women without so-called socially acceptable justifications for opting out of childbirth. In addition, these particular women have chosen not to adopt or foster children, though many of them nurture and care for others' children as well as aging family members. And I want to start with a clip from one of our listeners. This is Sierra, a Marine stationed at Cherry Point, and she shared some of her experiences with birth control. I haven't undergone any sort of um, elective sterilization or anything like that. I would like to. I'm trying to get my doctors to because, for one, I've tried every form of birth control there is as a female. Trying to explain to a doctor, usually male, especially in the military, I'll go in and say I need birth control and they'll be like, here's the pill. And I'll be like, I can't do the pill. It screws me up. And they'll be like, "Okay, here's the shot. And I'll be like, I can't do the shot because I've broken a bone and the depot shot makes your bones more brittle or something. Or they'll be like, here's an IUD. And I'm like, I can't do an IUD because the last time it screwed me up too. And the last one I most recently tried was the implant in your arm. And without going into too much detail, what should have been a one-week thing turned into a six-month thing, which was not fun. So my goal is eventually to get sterilized. Unfortunately, the military is not not being too forthwith with that. That was Sierra, and this is the Embodied series. You can join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag EmbodiedWUNC. I'm here with Uriah Rex, a jet mechanic at Raleigh-Durham International Airport. And Uriah, you chose to get sterilized. You had a procedure earlier this year. Tell us a bit about your decision to do that. So, um... I had a similar experience with uh, different methods of birth control. Um, I tried hormonal, non-hormonal, and almost no matter what form you choose, there's always certain side effects, whether um, it manipulates hormones or, you know, menstrual cycles being less or more. There's definitely weight gain, and sometimes it uh, increases pain when you're cramping, mm. and there's just a whole slew of side effects that can come with birth control no matter what you take and it was exhausting because when I was using the pill or I had the implant at one point I just I felt very tired I gained weight a lot and the the pain was a lot more severe and I was getting tired of it um and then there's also the horror stories you hear, the one in a million chance that the pill fails. I mean, 99.9% sounds great until you apply such a number to hundreds of millions of people and you realize, oh my goodness, 0.01% times hundreds of million is actually quite a few people who still get pregnant, <laughs> even though they take some kind of contraception. And in conjunction to abortion laws always being up in the air, always being such a hot debate, I wondered, okay, if I became pregnant, 
how easy would it be for me to have access to abortion? I hmm. always knew that I that would be something I would do personally because I, I don't want kids. It's just not something that I ever wanted in my life. And um, so I wondered how accessible would that be? And some states are very extreme. And uh, like I, I think it's Alabama and Kentucky, sometimes when women find out that they're pregnant, for sure, from a doctor, it's already too late for them to have access to that. Yeah, I mean, they were two weeks late. Okay, that's two weeks down the drain. And then they have to make an appointment with a doctor, which could take two weeks. That's four weeks down the drain. And then they have to make a follow up appointment. And by the time you are at the appointment that is required by many state laws, that consultation before you're even allowed to be approved for a procedure, that could be four to six weeks down the road. And suddenly it's too late. Enough time has lapsed that you're not allowed to have access to abortion and COVID would make that even worse because so many uh, doctor visits and procedures and consultations have been put on the back burner because we have other things to worry about. So yeah. having... I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just I just wanted to ask one quick question to direct you, because I, I think people hearing your story would, you know, agree that obviously abortion access is is challenging. There have been a variety of laws put in at state levels to make it even more difficult. Um, but wondering why you would want to choose a procedure that is not reversible. I know you initially wanted to get a full hysterectomy. So could you maybe explain why you would want to to choose something that couldn't be reversed and whether you got any pushback to wanting to make that decision? So I wanted something that uh, could not be reversed because I was 100% sure I, I didn't want kids, and I wanted that um, I wanted that peace of mind, knowing that I would get it done. 100% impossible for me to become pregnant and have mm. a kid, just not by a statistic. Oh, this is 99.9% sure thing. No, it is biologically impossible for me. Now, I had uh, what's called a bilateral self-injectomy, and so both of my fallopian tubes have been removed. And I wanted, I wanted it to be permanent because now I never have to worry about birth control. I never have to worry about having restricted access to abortion. And that particular procedure also reduces the risk of ovarian cancer. So mm. yay for a small bump in my health care. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it points to the fact that there are, you know, the, the ability to make this choice is is obviously part of a bigger movement for reproductive justice and control over one's body. But describing and justifying these decisions is something that is challenging for a lot of folks. We saw in the Reddit community a lot of people kind of creating lists of doctors who would be supportive of this kind of procedure and the challenges of being able to to access this. I wonder, um, Samita, for you, I mean, what do you think of the ability to make these irreversible decisions about one's fertility and and how supported those decisions are? There is so much pressure on women to not make these decisions. Um, And again, I think goes back to our cultural assumption about the purpose of a cisgender woman's body or, you know, somebody who has reproductive organs. And I think that there is, you know, I have similarly heard stories from many women that have wanted, you know, hysterectomies because they were having a lot of problems with their uterus or they wanted these kind of elective procedures where they know their body, they know what they want for their lives and get 
getting tons of pushback from insurance companies and from medical professionals, you know, are you sure you want to make this decision for yourself? It is irreversible. Mm. And it is, you know, it is very um, dismissive of women's concerns. It's dismissive of the ownership of their own body, of the decisions they can make for themselves and for, you know, their future and, and what they that they ultimately want. And so I do think that we are still you know, in a place where people aren't comfortable with women making these choices for themselves. Um, but it's, you know, I think that is also changing. I want to play one more listener clip um, from a listener named Sarah, and she reflects um, quite a few of the other stories that we heard from people of stigma and parents pressuring for grandkids and how that fits into the conversation. She describes in particular growing up in the Jewish community. Let's listen. My, my dad, he's the son of a Holocaust survivor. And one of the things that they did to Jews in the concentration camp was they forcibly sterilized them. And so my dad, and a lot of Jews in the community actually, uh, can't fathom why any Jew would voluntarily do anything that the Nazis forced upon Jews in the past, such as getting tattoos, that's a hot button topic, getting cremated after you die, and sterilization. That part isn't as talked about, but I think my dad brought it up because it specifically relates to me being Jewish and also wanting to get sterilized. And that whole dichotomy of, well, the Nazis did it to us, so that means it's a bad thing. They, they killed so many of us. So it's like we have, to, um, we have to replace what was lost. That's kind of a mentality. That was Sarah who called in, and thanks to everyone who uh, shared their stories. You can join us on Twitter with the hashtag EmbodiedWUNC. So there's so many spaces in which um, the ability to choose child for a child-free life publicly is not supported. Obviously, Sarah reflected on one of those, but there are some spaces in which it is. And Sarah, you're a part of one of those online communities, which is Rich Auntie Supreme. Can you tell yeah. me a bit about that group and what that's meant for you? Mm-hmm. Well, um, activist Rachel Cargill started the group Rich Auntie Supreme on Instagram um, as a space for child-free women to celebrate and to uh, to share our stories and to share how we clap back when we get the "Don't you want somebody to take care of you?" or um, you know all of the other things. I'm waiting for grandkids. That was you know, one of the mm. things that I got a lot. And I finally, especially after taking care of my grandfather, finally said, I'm taking care of your father. Mm. So there's my gift to you. <laughs> yeah. like, you're not getting grandkids, but I'm taking care of, I'm taking care of grandpa. So, you know, and, and being able to share those experiences in that community that then also went over to a Facebook group um, and just hearing people's stories and being able to share articles and, and just laugh and celebrate and, you know, talk about the ways that we are enjoying child-free life. You know, similarly, um, as a mixed-race um, African-American woman, you know, we need to see the joy in these difficult decisions and times and choices that we're making. And, um, and so being able to talk about how we're using our child's free time, whether it be to travel the world or start our businesses um, and how we can contribute to our communities and to our larger villages. It's, it's really a beautiful space 
to to be in. It it made me really uh, grateful hmm. for the decision that I made. It's it's really the first space where I didn't feel like I needed to justify my decision at all. Uriah, great. yeah, Uriah, are there any spaces in which you've been able to publicly celebrate your choice in a judgment-free way? You know, I actually stumbled across the uh, child-free subreddit on the uh, social app Reddit, and that was uh, the first time I could actually express why I wanted to be child-free and uh, the drawbacks that I see in society. And they actually were uh, crucial in doing the research for me with my sterilization procedure. Um you know, directing the pros and cons, the risks. They uh, have a list of what we call child-free, friendly doctors, and anyone who gets a procedure done, they can praise their doctor and their location, saying, hey, I went to this doctor. They were 100% supportive of my decision and my rights to my own body, and they can publish who did their procedure and their consultation. The list is all across the United States, and I found my doctor from that list. I... Uh, decided to start at the uh, most advantageous uh, point, looking to a doctor who wouldn't be a very stereotypical encounter that many women face when they seek sterilization is having moral qualms with, well, this is, um, this is permanent, so I'm not comfortable doing it on such a young woman, or you don't, you're not married, you don't have kids. It's very difficult for women to get sterilization because so many people don't take them seriously. Even my own experience, I was asked, well, how does your husband feel? Or is there someone in your life? And well, I just smiled and acknowledged that, no, I am lucky to find a man who doesn't want kids either. And that was great, but it should be my choice. And it was just a little irritating the fact that they felt the need to ask, well, is he okay with it? I mean, when it really came down to it, the choice is 100% mine. Samita, I mean, talk. I'd love for you to reflect on on that a little bit as we close out the idea of navigating this within the context of a relationship, within uh, a partnership. Some folks reach out to us saying, you know, I know that I really don't want kids, but my I know that my partner feels differently. Do you have any experience or, or advice for folks who are trying to navigate this? Um, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm the best person for relationship advice. However, (laughs) I do think that it, there is a, you know, there is a growing number of people that are, you know, interested in partnership without, um, without having children. And, and I think that that is, you know, something that we've seen really in the last 10 years. Um, and so I don't think it's something that's as stigmatized. And I also think that it's a different decision, for men and sometimes a little bit easier for them to say that they they don't want it assuming you know you're looking for a straight partnership but i do think that it is something that's changing and i also think that it's really important to be honest about it and i think that you know one of the things and you know i know rich auntie supreme has talked about this is your decision could also change throughout your life and to really you know prioritize having a situation where you can communicate about you know that desire whether you have it or you don't have it and I guess a lot of this kind of points to to the necessity to have a space for dialogue in which, yeah, you can change your mind and you don't have to justify your choice. You have more space to get in tune with what you might actually want. Sarah? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I want to thank all of you for joining us today. Sarah Devitt is a certified holistic nutritionist based in California. Uriah Rex is a jet mechanic at Raleigh-Durham International Airport. And Samita Mukupadai is the executive editor of Teen Vogue and co-editor of Nasty Women, Feminism, Resistance, and Revolution in Trump's America. Thanks so much to all of you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. North Carolina Public Radio is a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Anita Rao.